Number two branch line. The engine driver. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 3. Number 2 Branch Line. The Engine Driver. Altogether? Well, altogether, since 1841, I've killed seven men and boys. Taint many in all those years. These startling words he uttered in a serious tone as he leant against the station wall. He was a thick-set, ruddy-faced man, with coal-black eyes, the whites of which were not white, but a brownish-yellow, and apparently scarred and seamed, as if they had been operated upon. They were eyes that had worked hard in looking through wind and weather. He was dressed in a short black pea-jacket and grimy white canvas trousers, and wore on his head a flat black cap. There was no sign of levity in his face, his look was serious even to sadness, and there was an air of responsibility about his whole bearing which assured me that he spoke in earnest. "'Yes, sir, I've been for five and twenty years a locomotive engine driver, and in all that time I've only killed seven men and boys. There's not many of my mates as can say as much for themselves. Steadiness, sir, steadiness in keeping your eyes open is what does it.' When I say seven men and boys, I mean my mates, stokers, porters, and so forth. I don't count passengers. How did he become an engine driver? My father, he said, was a wheelwright in a small way. I lived in a little cottage by the side of the railway, which runs twixt Leeds and Selby. It was the second railway laid down in the kingdom, second after the Liverpool and Manchester, where Miss Ruskison was killed, as you have heard, sir. When the mains rushed by, we young uns used to run out and look at them and hooray. I noticed the driver turning handles and making it go, and I thought to myself it would be a fine thing to be an engine driver and have the control of a wonderful machine like that. For the railway, the driver of the mail coach was the biggest man I knew. I thought I should like to be the driver of a coach. We had a picture in our cottage of George Third in a red coat. I always mixed up the driver of the mail coach, who had a red coat, with the king. Only he had a low-crowned, broad-brimmed hat, which the king hadn't. In my idea, the king couldn't be a greater man than the driver of the mail coach. I always had a fancy to be head man of some kind. When I went to Leeds once and saw a man conducting an orchestra, I thought I should like to be the conductor of an orchestra. When I went home, I made myself a baton, and went about the fields conducting an orchestra. It wasn't there, of course, but I pretended it was. At another time, a man with a whip and a speaking trumpet on the stage outside a show took my fancy, and I thought I should like to be him. But when the train came, the engine driver put them all in the shade, and I was resolved to be an engine driver. It wasn't long before I had to do something to earn my own living, though I was only a young un. My father died suddenly. He was killed by thunder and lightning while standing under a tree out of the rain, and mother couldn't keep us all. 
The day after my father's burial, I walked down to the station and said I wanted to be an engine driver. The station master laughed a bit and said I was for beginning early, but that I was not quite big enough yet. He gave me a penny and told me to go home and grow and come again in ten years' time. I didn't dream of danger then. If I couldn't be an engine driver, I was determined to have something to do about an engine. So, as I could get nothing else, I went on board a humber steamer and broke up coals for the stoker. That's how I began. Then I became a stoker. First on board a boat and then on a locomotive. Then, after two years' service, I became a driver on the very line that passed our cottage. My mother and my brothers and sisters came out to look at me the first day I drove. I was watching for them, and they were watching for me. They waved their hands and hurrahed, and I waved my hand to them. I had the steam well up and was going at a rattling pace, and rare proud I was that minute. Never was so proud in my life. When a man has a liking for a thing, it's as good as being clever. In a very short time I became one of the best drivers on the line. I was allowed. I took a pride in it, you see, and I liked it. No, I don't know much about the engine scientifically, as you call it, but I could put it to rights if anything went out of the gear. That's to say, if there was nothing broken. But I couldn't have explained how the steam worked inside. Starting an engine, it's just like drawing a drop of gin. You turn a handle and off she goes. Then you turn the handle the other way, put on the brakes and you stop her. There's not much more in it so far. It's no good being scientific and knowing the principle of the engine inside. No good at all. Fitters, who know all the ins and outs of the engine, make the worst drivers. That's well known. They know too much. It's just as I've heard of a man with regard to his inside. If he knew what a complicated machine it is, he'd never eat or drink or dance or run or do anything for fear of busting something. So it is with the fitters. But others are not troubled with such thoughts. We go ahead. But starting an engine's one thing, and driving of her is another. Anyone, a child almost, can turn on the steam and turn it off again. But it ain't everyone that can keep an engine well on the road. No more than it ain't everyone who can ride a horse properly. It's much the same thing. If you gallop a horse right off for a mile or two, you take the wind out of him. And for the next mile or two, you must let him trot or walk. So it is with an engine. If you put on too much steam to get over the ground at the start, you exhaust the boiler. Then you'll have to crawl along till your fresh water boils up. A great thing in driving is to go steady. Never let your water get too low, nor your fire too low. It's the same with a kettle. If you fill it up when it's about half empty, soon comes to the boil again. But if you don't fill it up until the water's nearly out, it takes a long time in coming to the boil again. Another thing, you should never make spurts, unless you're detained and lose time. You should go up an incline and down an incline at the same pace. Sometimes a driver will waste his steam, and when he comes to a hill, he has scarcely enough to drag him up. When you're in a train that goes by fits and starts, you may be sure there is a bad driver on the engine. That kind of driving frightens passengers dreadful. When the train, after rattling along, suddenly slackens speed when it ain't near a station, it may be in the middle of a tunnel. 
The passengers think there's danger. But generally it's because the driver has exhausted his steam. I drove the Brighton Express four or five years before I come here, and the annuals, that's the passengers who have annual tickets, all have said they knew when I was on the engine, because they wasn't jerked. Gentlemen used to say, as they came on the platform, "'Who drives today? Jim Martin?' And when the guard told them yes, they'd say, "'Ah, all right,' and took their seats quite comfortable. But the driver never gets so much as a shilling. The guard comes in for all that, and he does nothing much. Few ever think of the driver. I dare say they think the train goes along all of itself. Yet if we didn't keep a sharp lookout, know our duty, and do it, they might all go smash at any moment. I used to make that journey to Brighton in fifty-two minutes. Papers said forty-nine minutes, but that was coming it a little too strong. I had to watch signals all the way, one every two miles, so that me and my stoker were on the stretch all the time, doing two things at once, attending to the engine and looking out. I've driven on this line eighty-one miles and three-quarters in eighty-six minutes. There's no danger in speed if you have a good road, a good engine, and not too many coaches behind. No, we don't call them carriages. We call them coaches. Yes, oscillation means danger. If you're ever in a coach that oscillates much, tell of it at the first station and get it coupled up closer. Coaches, when they're too loose, are apt to jump or swing off the rails. And it's quite as dangerous when they're coupled up too close. There ought to be just enough space for the buffers to work easy. Passengers are frightened in tunnels, but there's less danger now in tunnels than anywhere else. We never enter a tunnel unless it's signalled clear. The train can be stopped wonderful quick, even when running express, if the guards act with the driver and clap on all the brakes promptly. Much depends on the guards. One brake behind is as good as two in front. The engine, you see, loses weight as she burns her coals and consumes her water, but the coaches behind don't alter. We have a good deal of trouble with young guards. In their anxiety to perform their duties, they put the brakes on too soon, so that sometimes we can scarcely drag the train into the station. When they grow older at it, they're not so anxious and don't put them on soon enough. It's no use to say when an accident happens that they didn't put the brakes on in time. They swear they did, and you can't prove they didn't. Do I think the tapping of wheels with a hammer is a mere ceremony? Well, I don't know exactly. shouldn't like to say. It's not often that the chaps find anything wrong. They may sometimes be half asleep when a train comes into a station in the middle of the night. You would be yourself. They ought to tap the axle-box, but they don't. Many accidents take place that never get into the papers. Many trains full of passengers escape being dashed to pieces by next door to a miracle. Nobody knows anything about it but the driver and the stoker. I remember once, when I was driving on the eastern counties, going round a curve, I suddenly saw a train coming along on the same set of rails. Oh, I clapped on the brake when it was too late, I thought. Seeing the engine almost close upon it, I cried to my stoker to jump. He jumped off the engine, almost for the words were out of my mouth. I was just taking my hand off the lever to follow, when the coming train turned off on the points, and the next instant the hind coach passed my engine by a shave. 
was the nearest touch I ever saw. My stoker was killed. Another half-second I should have jumped off and been killed too. What would have become of the train without us is more than I can tell you. There are heaps of people run over that no one ever hears about. One dark night in the black country, me and my mate felt something wet and warm splash in our faces. That didn't come from the engine, Bill, I said. No, he said, it's somewhat thick, Jim. It was blood, that's what it was. We heard afterwards that a collier had been run over. When we kill any of our own chaps, we say as little about it as possible. It's generally, mostly always, their own fault. No, we never think of danger ourselves. We're used to it, you see. But we're not reckless. I don't believe there's any body of men that takes more pride in their work than engine drivers do. We're as proud and as fond of our engines as if they were living things. As proud of them as a huntsman or a jockey is of his horse. And an engine has almost as many ways as a horse. She's a kicker, a plunger, a roarer, or what not, in her way. Put a stranger onto my engine, he wouldn't know what to do with her. Yes, there's wonderful improvements in engines since the last great exhibition. Some of them take up their water without stopping. That's a wonderful invention. It's as simple as ABC. There are water troughs at certain places, lying between the rails. By moving the lever, you let down the mouth of a scoop into the water, and as you rush along, the water's forced into the tank at the rate of 3,000 gallons a minute. The engine driver's chief anxiety is to keep time. That's what he thinks most of. When I was driving the Brighton Express, I always felt as if I was riding a race against time. I had no fear of the pace. What I feared was losing way and not getting into the minute. We have to give in an account of our time when we arrive. The company provides us with watches, and we go by them. Before starting on a journey, we pass through a room to be inspected. That's to see if we're sober. But they don't say nothing to us, and a man who was a little gone might pass easy. I've known a stoker that had passed inspection, come on to the engine as drunk as a fly, flop down among the coals and sleep there like a log for the whole run. I had to be my own stoker, then. If you ask me if engine drivers are drinking men, I must answer you that they are pretty well. It's try and work. One half of you as cold as ice, t'other half as hot as fire. Wet one minute, dry the next. If ever a man had an excuse for drinking, that man's a engine driver. And yet, I don't know if ever a driver goes on his engine drunk. If he was to, the wind would soon sober him. I believe engine drivers as a body are the healthiest fellows alive, but they don't live long. The cause of that, I believe, to be cold food and the shaking. By the cold food, I mean that an engine driver never gets his meals comfortable. He's never at home for his dinner. When he starts away, first thing in the morning, he takes a bit of cold meat and a piece of bread with him for his dinner, and generally he has to eat it in the shed, for he mustn't leave his engine. You can understand that the jolting and shaking knocks a man up after a bit. The insurance companies won't take us at ordinary rates. We're obliged to be foresters or old friends or that sort of thing, where they ain't so particular. The wages of an engine driver average about eight shillings a day. But if he's a good schemer with his coals, yes, I mean, if he economises his coals, he's allowed so much more. 
Some will make from five to ten shillings a week that way. I don't complain of the wages particular, but it's hard lines for such as us to have to pay income tax. The company gives an account of all our wages, and we have to pay. It's a shame. Our domestic life? Our life at home, do you mean? Well, as to that, we don't see much of our families. I leave home at half-past seven in the morning, and don't get back until half-past nine, or maybe later. Children aren't up when I leave, and they've gone to bed again before I come home. This is about my day. Leave London, 8.45, drive for four hours and a half, cold snack on the engine step, see to engine, drive back again, clean engine, report myself and home. Twelve hours hard and anxious work, and no comfortable victuals. Yes, our wives are anxious about it, for we never know when we go out if we'll ever come back again. We ought to go home the minute we leave the station, and report ourselves to those that are thinking on us and depending on us. But I'm afraid we don't always. Perhaps we go first to the public house. And perhaps you would, too, if you were in charge of an engine all day long. But the wives have a way of their own of finding out if we're all right. They inquire among each other. Have you seen my Jim? One says. No, says the other. But Jack saw him coming out of the station half an hour ago. Then she knows that her Jim's all right, and knows where to find him if she wants him. It's a sad thing when any of us have to carry bad news to a mate's wife. None of us likes that job. And I remember when Jack Davidge was killed. None of us could face his poor missus with the news. She had seven children, poor thing. And two of them, the youngest, was down with the fever. We got old Mrs. Berridge, Tom Berridge's mother, to break it to her. But she knew summat was the matter the minute the old woman went in. And afore she spoke a word, fell down like as if she was dead. She lay all night like that, and never heard from mortal lips until next morning that her Jack was killed. But she knew it in her heart. It's a pitch-and-toss kind of life, ours. And yet I never was nervous on an engine but once. I never think of my own life. You go in for staking that when you begin, and you get used to the risk. I never think of the passengers either. The thoughts of an engine driver never go behind his engine. If he keeps his engine all right, the coaches behind will be all right, as far as the driver's concerned. But once I did think of the passengers. My little boy Bill was among them that morning. He was a poor little cripple fellow that we all loved more than the others, because he was a cripple, and so quiet and wise-like. He was going down to his aunt in the country who was to take care of him for a while. We thought the country air would do him good. I did think there were lives behind me that morning. At least I thought hard of one little life that was in my hands. There were twenty coaches on. My little Bill seemed to me in every one of them. My hand trembled as I turned on the steam. I felt my heart thumping as we drew close to the pointsman's box. As we neared the junction, I was all into a cold sweat. At the end of the first fifty miles, I was nearly eleven minutes behind time. "'What's the matter with you this morning?' my stoker said. "'Did you ever drop too much last night?' "'Don't speak to me, Fred,' I said, "'till we get to Peaborough. "'And keep a sharp lookout, there's a good fellow.' I never was so thankful in my life as when I shut off steam to enter the station at Peterborough. Little Bill's aunt was waiting for him, and I saw her lift him out of the carriage. 
I called out to her to bring him to me, and I took him on the engine and kissed him. <laughs> Twenty times, I should think, making him in such a mess with grease and coal dust as you never saw. I was all right for the rest of the journey. And I do believe, sir, the passengers were safer after little Bill was gone. It would never do, you see, for engine drivers to know too much or to feel too much. End of Number Two Branch Line, The Engine Driver.